Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. This is the third class of our 34 class uh, review of John and Meditation. This is the second class on the Satsapatana Sutta. Chen taught an excellent class on Saturday, um, where the Buddha is establishing these four foundations of mindfulness, which is the foundation for everything that we practice here. And it begins on our cushion, and as our concentration deepens, on our cushion, we're able to take that concentration off our cushion and directly do what the Buddha is going to, what I'm going to teach what the Buddha taught um, in reference to the five hindrances and the five clinging aggregates. So the inference of the structure of the Satipatthana Sutta, one of my favorite suttas, um, shows that we first establish that concentration and then we apply it directly to the things that would block us from developing the Dhamma or stop us from Dhamma practice altogether because we think that the hindrances are too difficult to deal with or this clinging attitude that we have about um, the, the fabricated views that we have about ourselves in relation to the world are simply too difficult to let go of or to some people, it just sounds ridiculous to let go of these things. Meaning, because the um, the five clinging aggregates seem like our establishment in the world. But remember from dependent origination, from ignorance of four noble truths comes fabrications. From fabrications comes consciousness. Now, we're not talking about a grand cosmic consciousness. We're talking about ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And so this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with it directly. The resolution of this is understanding four noble truths. But the, the blocks or the hindrances to understanding those four noble truths are what we're looking at right here. So, um, just a, a little bit of commentary before I begin. Notice the guarantees offered by the Buddha. When one completely abandons a hindrance, it will not arise again. Completely abandoning the hindrances is a reasonable and skillful reference to progress. So, along the way, we'll notice that we're that our uh, sensual desire is diminishing, our doubt and uncertainty is diminishing, and that's a direct result of jhana practice, isn't it? Dhamma practice. Buddha's words: Remain mindful of the quality of mind in reference to the five hindrances. The first one is sensual desire. When sensual desire is present, be mindful that sensual desire is present. To me, that's one of the most profound things that this teacher ever taught. He didn't say to wrestle, wrestle with it or struggle with it or blame yourself for sensual desire. He recognized that we're human beings. And the, the first hindrance for being a human being that is ignorant of Four Noble Truth is sensual desire. That's how we feel we establish ourselves in the world and get what we want or avoid anything that we don't want, sensual desire. So simply be mindful when it's present. And if you feel yourself being distracted by any type of sensual desire, which is anything coming into our sixth sense base and uh, exciting that base, 
simply take a breath and unite your mind and your body. And the more you do that over and over again, it's just like um, jhana practice. We, we, in jhana practice, we realize that we're caught up in a feeling or a thought. We take a breath. The same thing off our cushion when a hindrance is arising, whether it's on our cushion or off our cushion. And the whole point is don't be, don't be distracted by these normal human qualities of mind but those qualities of mind are corrupted because they're rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. Then the Buddha says, when sensual desire is not present, be mindful of sensual desire is not present. And we talk a lot about that. An important aspect of Dhamma practice is recognizing that it's bearing fruit. Because then you become self-motivated and self-invigorated to actually engage in this practice. And that's really when your practice will turn a corner. When you realize that it's gaining benefit, you realize that you're doing it. And we're all part of the saga and we're listening to this incredible man's teaching from 2,600 years ago. But each and every one of those individuals has to take the practice and you realize the benefits. Be mindful of abandoning sensual desire when it arises. Be mindful that when sensual desire has been completely abandoned, sensual desire will not arise in the future. The Buddha is guaranteeing it. He's saying, just do this practice. He never puts a time frame on anything, by the way. It's an individual practice, and we, we come to it as we can, as long as we're practicing within this structure. But we can recognize when sensual desire has been completely abandoned. How do we know? Because it's not there anymore. You're living an ordinary life, but in an, in an extraordinary way. You're not distracted by Anything that's going on in the world, meaning you don't need anything in the world to be any different than it is. You don't need yourself to be any different. And that is the essence of sanity, isn't it? It's the, you and Paul might have a discussion about this at some point. Well, that's certainly that's some questions. Let me just say this. And this. So when, when, when I want something to be different than it is, in reference to the Dhamma, I've lost my mind. I'm stuck in a fabrication. Why is that? Because it's already here. What The Theragada says, what is to be is, is what is here. This is what's occurring. So I should not, with a, with a mind rooted in understanding, want it to be different. I'm simply a reference point to this. That doesn't mean that in the next moment or the next day, things things will be different. Impermanence is, is the first thing that we understand, isn't it? And when I want myself to be different, what am I doing in reference to the Dhamma? I'm not being gentle with myself, am I? I'm not accepting myself as a human being. And so we're not, we're human beings. We're not superhuman beings. We're not some kind of ethereal spirit stuck in, a, stuck in its form. We're human beings. But if I recognize in this moment, if I'm taking full responsibility for what's occurring to me, then I can do something about it. But it comes down to these recognizing these five hindrances and not letting them drive our lives. Paul, you had a question? Well, uh, I've always corrected other projects in meditation, unless more like progressive relaxation and David. David. Yeah, David. Uh, I said, you know, that breathing, concentrating on breathing, you didn't give me the structure that 
the other thing he did. But, um, and I got his point about, you know, context. I didn't have any context. This is fairly. But, um, you know, I'm not struggling. And so today, the breathing um, was about um, happy moments in my life, joy and fun. You mean, you mean as you were as you were breathing? Breathing, breathing, which my traditional method for best relaxation mm -hmm. didn't permit that. So, so the breathing allowed me to think about, wow, you know, that person who was so had so much fun and joy in their life is, is still in there somewhere. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, that was pretty powerful to, to uh, so I didn't mind, you know, that I would be distracted because the distracted by tons of thoughts. So I, you know, is, is there something wrong with that? No, there's, uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with it. In fact, what you're describing is jhana meditation, the fact that you were breathing and you were recollecting thoughts and feelings from, from your past. With jhana meditation, we're just deepening concentration. So when you recognize that you're caught up in a thought or a feeling, you simply take a breath. So it's not, it's not right or wrong, it's just what occurred. So both of those components is part of jhana. Recognizing that you're caught up in something that's distracting, a thought or a feeling, or a thought attached to a feeling, an emotion, and simply take a breath. And in the next breath, you might be right back in those happy thoughts. Nothing wrong with it. Simply recognize it and come back to the sensation of breathing. So one of the things I was, I, I, I practice in all kinds of different lineages, and um, and every one of them had a had a purpose to meditation other than just con just deepening concentration and when i came across what the buddha actually taught that really changed everything so um and that that forms the kind of kind of what we're talking about right here isn't it that forms the foundation to take off your cushion and recognize when you might be grasping after wanting something to be more wanting to have a happier experience or recognizing something's coming down the pipe that you don't want to experience and you create an aversion to that. It's just what it's just life occurring. Take a breath, remind yourself, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. And your mind gets back into that concentrated and calm state. Does that help? It's a little paradoxical in that if, you know, I'm kind of a joyful experience um, that I want to get rid of that and get back to just concentrating oh. on breathing. It, uh, it seems like that. I'm sorry, please. Yeah, it just, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with uh, some paradox. Yeah, so you're, 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 you have insight into where we're going where you wouldn't be able to ask that question. So there is a paradox here because, and it's, it's a paradox rooted in the fabrication, meaning that meditation or what the Buddha taught is somehow salvific or 
um, an escape from right here, right now. I want to I, I want to feel something joyful. When the point of meditation, is, as the Buddha teaches it, is just to deepen concentration. And so, as that concentration increases, I'm, I'm sorry, but we were at uh, Saturday's class with Jen. I, I, I last week was the first time I was here. Last Tuesday. Last Tuesday. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the, the four foundations of mindfulness establish that foundation of deepening concentration. Those same four foundations of mindfulness, being mindful of the breath of the body, we begin our meditation with that, being mindful of feelings arising and passing away, being mindful of thoughts arising and passing away, and being mindful of the ever-changing quality of, of our minds, and not being distracted by any of that. So when we get off our cushion and things are occurring in life, feeling or thought, something distracts us, we can just take a breath and not lose our concentration. On our cushion is the same thing. So any distraction whatsoever, even if it's joyful, even if it feels good, that's great. But that's not what jhana meditation is about. It's about just coming back to the breath. And as our concentration increases, we're able to, to hold in mind the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path as the structure for our moment-by-moment Life. So, so even though the joy is coming here, I should push it away and come back to focus on the breathing. Yeah, I wouldn't be so forceful as saying push it away. I would just simply recognize that you're caught up in a thought or a feeling. Um, and that, you'll hear me say this often. A key aspect of Dharma practice is to be very gentle with ourselves, which means whatever's coming up is what's coming up. Come back to the sensation of breathing. And as we do that on our cushions. When things off our cushions arise, we won't, hopefully we won't get um, overly distracted or overly upset at what's occurring because we've already established that quality of mind on our cushion. And again, this is just what practice is for, right? Over and over again, we do this. Um, let me, you have something, David? Let me. You're just understanding that without you doing anything, it's going to pass away. And you don't have to struggle with like pushing it away. It's just the nature of impermanence. So rising and passing away, just like God will will arise and pass away. So concentration is to be present with that. You know, Being gentle with yourself when that is occurring and not thinking that you have to struggle with that that part of jhana that you're you're directing your thought and then evaluating that will yeah. slide into the second jhana where that's not present. So pushing away is not part of what we're doing. But early on that may be exactly yeah, and you know what we're my entire world occurs in here. You know, the, the the perception is that the world is happening to me out there, but it's it's the way that I'm looking at the world in relation to myself that will determine my experience. So in meditation, when a, a joyful experience arises, that's part of this world, isn't it? And if, so it's not to be 
discounted or pushed away, but it's not to be grasped after either. It's just what arose. So again, on your cushion, way you could do that, it's pretty simple to do, right? You're able to do that off your cushion. So the ultimate, I don't like to call it a goal, but the ultimate result of well-practiced dominant is a mind of equanimity, a mind that's calm no matter what's occurring. The last uh, instruction that I give before we come out of meditation is be at peace with your mind. It's your mind. relates to that. So no matter what's occurring, if I'm not taking it personal, it's just my life occurring. And so even, even situations that might um, in the past seem very stressful are now simply what's occurring. And it, it really does change the, the quality of, and color of life completely. Exactly. Yeah, and now we got to get, get back to the teaching. Just, Paul, real, real briefly, John mentioned the four foundations of mindfulness. And those are, in my opinion, Dhamma teaches Krikmara, those are the instructions yep. for jhana meditation. The mindful breath in the body, mm-hmm. mindful of feelings arising and passing away, thoughts passing away and mind states rising and passing away. So you're not pushing away, you're just recognizing the rising and the passing away of those feelings. And at any time, if you find yourself grasping after, oh, there is, you know, that, you know, that thing inside me, right? Now you're creating an aversion to not having that joy, rather than just recognizing the rising of the, the recognition of that experience or that thought or feeling. I would imagine that takes a lot of practice. Um, I, it takes practice, but the, the, the end result is worth the time, I think. Um, but along the way, you'll recognize that practice, and you'll realize that, you know, Zach and Julia, they, they've only been here for about three months, but you've gained quite a bit of benefit in your lives. Absolutely. And and so it really isn't, like I think, the goal is not what we should be chasing after. It's simply recognizing that the Tana Sutta, we talk about the triple refuge of the, the Buddha, a human being actually did this. He left his Dhamma, the second refuge, and a well-informed and well-focused Sangha is the third refuge. So we take refuge in this practice, and that's really what it is. And again, it's, it's not that every moment in life becomes sparkly. It's just that we understand what's occurring. We don't need it to be any different. And again, that to me, that changes everything about life. So you're not doing anything wrong, Paul. In fact, again, your your question points to an understanding of where we're going with this. So I would just say it takes it takes a little practice. Be gentle with yourself, and you know, just as they say, enjoy the ride. You know, we're very fortunate. I know this might sound a little self-aggrandizing, but I'm just a part of this sangha. And I can tell you, I, I feel so fortunate to be a part of this sangha because I've practiced all over, literally all, all over the world, not like every continent, but I've traveled a lot. And I used to go to a, to a, a, a Sunday service up in, in Woodstock that had 150 people, but they weren't teaching me anything. That, that was kind of the last practice before I came to understanding what the Buddha taught. So it's a, it's a simple and gentle practice that gives us an understanding of what it means to be a human being without the need for anything else to be any different. And to me, that's pretty remarkable. So 
Uh, and it, you, I, I don't mean to, to dissuade you from question. Please ask any, that's what we're doing here. But a lot of the answers are going to be, yeah, keep practicing. Yeah. It's, it's just that way. Like anything else, too. Yeah, I mean, you know, we the, the teachings are important. A lot of that stuff seems to be repetitive, but that's just so we can continue our practice and remain focused on. It. Okay, let me get back to the to the sutta. David just mentioned it. the Buddha's words: "When ill will is present, be mindful that ill will is present." Isn't that such a great teaching? I know that how many times in my past that I did things that I wish I didn't do because I was full of ill will. And I wasn't just mindful of it. I made sure somebody knew about it. But now I learned that ill will is a natural consequence of being a human being up to a certain point. And just to notice it, there it is. I don't beat myself up because I'm a human being. Human beings sometimes get full of ill will. It's, it's just here. It's just what's occurring. And it's occurring because I don't quite understand Four Noble Truths. I don't understand the nature of Dukkha. Or I wouldn't go there. You know, once we understand our own suffering, our own dukkha, we certainly understand other people's suffering too. So why it's 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 childish? Right? Awakening is full of human maturity. It's childish to get get upset with anybody who's stuck in the same delusion I used to be. I can understand it, and you know I I can't. I mean I I was born angry. I always say in class. When I, when I was born, the doctor slapped my butt and I slung him. And I stayed angry for, you know, most of my adult life until I was in my 30s. I mean, everything. There was no reason for me to be angry, but I was. And I would argue with people just for the sake of arguing. And my life was miserable. I mean, not completely. I was enjoying some things. But it wasn't until I understood that I was doing that to myself. It wasn't that person or the world that was bad or wrong or needed to be different. It was the way I thought about myself in relation to what was occurring. And that's human life. Again, everything, our human life occurs between our ears, animated by this body. Or you could say the mind animates the body, but the body carries the mind through all of these things. It's one thing. You know, our minds aren't separate. Our minds aren't spirit. <clears throat> our mind and our body are one thing. Unite our mind and our body remain present for what is occurring, and nothing needs to be any different than it is. Again. When ill will is not present, be mindful that ill will is not present. Why? Because that's a joyous experience. You know, you'll notice experiences that used to get you angry, and now it's not. Notice it. And notice it as a, that that is present because of, of your Dhamma practice. Be mindful of abandoning ill will when it arises. Be mindful that when ill will has been completely abandoned, ill will will not arise in the future. When laziness and drowsiness is present, be mindful that laziness and drowsiness is present. So, excuse me. The Buddha is not just talking about, you know, at the end of a long day that you're drowsy and you don't feel like doing anything. This really pertains more to Dhamma practice and um, if drowsiness is occurring in your meditation session, of course check that you're sleeping well enough. But drowsiness is often a an aversion to meditation. We start doing it and we just feel exhausted. Okay, I can't do it. I'll do it tomorrow. And that starts forming a habit. 
of not doing it. So laziness and drowsiness go together. This practice, this practice insists on jhana meditation twice a day as described. No length is, is implied here. If five minutes twice a day is all that you're comfortable with doing at some point, that's fine. But that structure is so important. And again, off our cushion, we can address life moment by moment. When laziness is drowsy and drowsiness is present, be mindful that laziness is drowsy and drowsiness is present. When laziness and drowsiness is not present, be mindful that laziness and drowsiness is not present. Be mindful of abandoning laziness and drowsiness when it arises. Be mindful that when laziness and drowsiness has been completely abandoned, laziness and drowsiness will not arise in the future. The Buddha continues. When restlessness and anxiety is present, be mindful that restlessness and anxiety is present. When restlessness and anxiety is not present, be mindful that restlessness and anxiety is not present. Be mindful of abandoning restlessness and anxiety when it arises. Right? When it arises. Be mindful that when restlessness and anxiety has been completely abandoned, restlessness and anxiety will not arise in the future. When doubt and uncertainty is present, be mindful that doubt and uncertainty is present. One of the um, uh, lineages that I practice in um, Taught to, in one of the, I don't know, mentioned, taught that, that we should cultivate doubt. If you have doubt, go dive deep into your doubt. I, I can never understand what I'm supposed to do with that. But of course, that completely contradicts what the Buddha teaches, isn't it? When doubt and uncertainty is present, just be mindful. Don't take a deep dive in it. You don't have to. It's just, it's, it's one thing. It's doubt, it's uncertainty. You can understand what that is. It's right here where. If we're experiencing it, it is right here, isn't it? But there's no, um, there's nothing to gain by overanalyzing any of this. And certainly, this is something now because we we can get distracted by by the doubt and uncertainty and make it real by overanalyzing it instead of just recognizing it. it's just a quality of mind right here, right now. As David said earlier, all mind states are impermanent. Take a breath then it's likely going to be gone. If it's not, take a breath, take a breath, take a breath. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I'm When doubt and uncertainty is not present, be mindful that doubt and uncertainty is not present. Be mindful of abandoning doubt and uncertainty when it arises. So that's when we deal with it. We can't deal with doubt and uncertainty tomorrow or anything that happened yesterday. It's right here and right now. The only time we can practice the Dhamma is in the present moment. Right? Does everybody understand that? Online too? We have to be present for our life to practice the Dhamma. And that takes concentration and the right framework. Be mindful that when doubt and uncertainty has been completely abandoned, doubt and uncertainty will not arise in the future. In this way, one remains mindful of the quality of mind and the arising and passing away of the qualities of mind, independent of and not clinging to anything in this world. Imagine that, your mind not clinging to anything in this world. This is in reference to the fourth foundation of mindfulness as well, that present quality of mind. Be at peace with your mind. It's your mind. 
the Buddha continues, this is how one remains mindful of the quality of mind in and of itself. And that's a good um, explanation of Dharma practice, too. It's in and of itself. Our mind is in and of itself. This is it. This is where my life is occurring. In and of itself. It's my mind. I should be at peace with my mind, shouldn't I? It's mine. And through the Dharma, we learn to take control of our mind in a very gentle and direct way. It's being present for what's occurring right here and right now. These five hindrances are something that happens to every human being and every practitioner. And what does the Buddha say? It kind of relates to what you were saying, Paul. Be mindful of it. When sensual desire is present, when I, I have a joyful experience, I want more of it. Not in meditation, you know. Take a breath. Unite your mind and your body. And continue. Uh, this next section is mindfulness of the five clinging aggregates. So the five clinging aggregates are form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness. Buddha continues. Furthermore, one, one remains mindful of the quality of mind in reference to the five clinging aggregates. Right? In reference to it's not, there's nothing inherently wrong with these five clinging aggregates except it keeps us from living our life. But be mindful that they're present. Remain mindful of form and the arising and passing away of form. This form, this is what we're talking about. Remain mindful of feelings and the arising and passing away of feelings. Remain mindful of perceptions and the arising and passing away of perceptions. Remain mindful of fabrications and the arising and passing away of fabrications. And remain mindful of consciousness and the arising and passing away of consciousness. In this way, one remains mindful of the five clinging aggregates and the arising and passing away of the five clinging aggregates, independent of and not clinging to anything in this world. So again, that's reference to In order for me to continue the suffering of identifying myself to these five clinging aggregates, I have to continue to cling them to the world in relation to the world, don't I? My form is, is it's too short, it's too, too tall, too old, too fat, whatever it might be. That's in relation to the world, isn't it? But it, it's also denying myself as a human being, which is just this, right? No matter what I am, I used to tell us, talk about it a lot. When I was a kid, I wanted to play center field for the Yankees, and there's not too many slow-footed five-foot-seven people to play center field for the Yankees. But I insisted it; I had to be that. Of course, it, it was foolish to me to think that way, but I really thought that way. That somehow it should, it should change. So it caused a lot of stress in my life, a lot of disappointment. Um, When I stop clinging to form, feeling, perceptions, and fabrications, I free my consciousness to be just present for what's here. But when I'm dragging this fabricated view of myself in relation to the world, everything is personal, isn't it? And I'm always protecting these five clinging aggregates. Why am I, I used to think a lot about this, but why do I, why do I protect this? Because it's me, because I think it's me. It's a fabricated self. But because I conjured it up and, and I'm taking it out into the world as me, 
I can do nothing else but protect it and defend it. And that's where stress comes from, isn't it? By me, my, me seeing myself in a certain way in relation to the world being a certain way. And of course, it never is. Everything is impermanent. This is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. That's what the Buddha is referring to. Clinging to these five clinging aggregates. Clinging to a fabricated view of myself in relation to the world. And it always hurts, meaning dukkha. It's always distracting. It, it, it always leaves life, no matter what we're doing, no matter what we achieve, it leaves a human being unfulfilled because you're not fulfilling anything. You're not living in the reality of human life, which is this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. This is what we're talking about in the four foundations of mindfulness, the Sakapatana Sutta, and why we do this to depersonalize everything that's occurring. And then everything is meaningful. Why? Because we're present for it. That's life. Right? I, you hear me say often, if you want to experience eternity, be here now. Because this is where it is. This is where all of our lives are occurring individually in this present moment. And nowhere else. And no, and no when else either. And we can achieve that state of being present for this moment by deepening our concentration and living within the framework of the Eightfold Path. And to some that sounds like a lot till we really start understanding, there's not all that much to this. And it all resolves right here and right now. Independent of and not clinging to anything in this world. This is how one remains mindful of the five clinging aggregates in and of themselves. Um, does anybody think that they can't do this? Be mindful of these things arising and passing away? It doesn't, it's not all that difficult, is it? It just takes constant practice. And, and as we're learning here to be mindful of uh, Dharma practice bearing fruit in this moment. I mean, and it's okay to look back on you know, the last three years or three months, however long it's been that I've been practicing and the difference. But that difference is only meaningful right here and right now, isn't it? I think that's the end of this. Yes, I thought so. That's the end of tonight's talk. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I want to go, I want to hear what Jane has to say. Jane always loves when I call her first. Hi, John. Hello, Thank Jane. you for the teaching. I have nothing to add except that it works. <laughs> That's pretty good. Thanks, Jane. Thank you. Tracy. Thank you, John, for the teaching. Very helpful. Um, I remember when I first started practicing meditation way before I met the Sangha, I had never thought about my emotions or my feelings or anything. I just barreled through life and didn't even know what was going on in there. Yeah. And I remember the first few times in meditation, I found, I, I couldn't believe how, what all that was happening. <laughs> it was yeah. like a big aha. Like I, I, it was almost scary in a way. Um, it wasn't long though before I realized that those are what some people would call emotions and feelings. Yeah. And yeah. 
it just to your point um, earlier in the class, like it just requires to keep coming back because every time I came back, I realized that the feelings that I had the first time I meditated weren't the same that I had the second time. And then I started to realize, oh, these are, these are feelings. This isn't just like a physical sensation. This is actually a mental sensation that's creating a physical reaction in my body. And um, now every time I sit, I'm always so surprised at what comes up, you know, it's always a a big mystery as to what's going to happen. And, and I find it very enjoyable because of that, you know, it's like, it's like a discovering of something new every single time. Yeah, that is. And I mean, the greatest discovery is to realize that your emotions, your, you know, your thoughts, attached to feelings are just impermanent and they're not good. They're not bad. They're just what's arising. And then the, the rest of it is, is, um, it's so it's just so interesting and sometimes amazing at what you realize is just your mind. The, the Tibetan word for meditation is gom, G-O-M, and that, that means to you know, to be mindful of, to be mindful of what's occurring. It's a different meditation method, but just to to, to get to know your own mind because that's where everything is happening, isn't it? Yeah, it was definitely interesting. Thanks for letting me share that. Oh, thank you, Tracy. Dollar teacher Brian. Thanks, John. Um, I it, it jumped out at me tonight the the complete lack of judgment yeah. about the hindrances or about the aggregates. There's no judgment there. Yeah. It's it's simply an opportunity to practice this feedback loop between concentration and mindfulness, and yeah. they they self reinforce. Right. The more concentration you develop, the more mindfulness you have. The more mindfulness you have, the more concentrated you are. To where after sufficient enough practice, each of these become readily apparent during meditation, whether it's uh, seated or if you're off your, your your cushion just in your daily life, that you can see the arising and passing away of these these mental phenomena. And again, they're all they're all impermanent. And it's you know, it is it is it is different every single time because of that. So thank you for the teaching tonight. Thank you, Brian. And yeah, and that understanding of impermanence is so important because it, it lets us it lets us let go of feelings or thoughts or emotions because we recognize it's just impermanent. The, the Buddha sometimes talks about you know these things as like they're like foam on the ocean. There's really no substance to them, except that the substance that we give it, the importance that we give it, or the grasping after or aversion to what's occurring. And again, what's occurring is in our minds. Hello, Slav. Hi, John. Uh, hello, everybody. Thank you. It was very interesting teaching. teaching and uh, uh, kind of uh, everything is a cure happening inside of our mind. But at notices, we need properly uh, mindfulness. Otherwise, everything is going just unknowing and we not even notice we live this life. Oh, yeah. And, and that's, you know, I, that's why I make the distinction between just general mindfulness and refined mindfulness, which means mindfulness of having the ability to hold in mind the Eightfold Path as a structure for our life. And the result of that is is 
what we're talking about is, you know, it's, to me, it's true liberation. So, thank you, Slav. Uh, anybody mind being on the panel? Did you say yes, you do? No, I don't. Not in my pashmina. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Zach, what do you have to say for yourself? Oh, where am I going here? No, I just, if it, you know, it's not, uh, well, thank you for the teaching. And, uh, yeah, it's impermanent. You don't have to carry it. And it's not a reflection of you. <clears throat> yeah, unless you're say. reflecting it yourself. Thanks, Zach. Paul? Well, uh, from what I've learned so far, uh, uh, I realize that my life is uh, the closest thing I've ever seen to the eight pairs. And I've always thought I was right for reasons I'm not going to explain. They have to do with a lot of success. And how can I be wrong? Everything. Children, everything. grandchildren, everything. And, you know, and <laughs> all these years, you know, I'm 75. She never gave up on insisting that those eight things uh, in her own words, not when I read uh, are reality and she wasn't constructing reality where I was. And that, that is so crystal clear in my mind right now. So my role model, I'm married to my role model for the eight paths, you know. <laughs> And that's a rather big uh, uh, breakthrough. Okay. Since Another my word. grandfather lived to be 105. Yeah. <laughs> Another word for constructing is fabricating. And that's, that's a really good description of what, what we all do that. That's, that's the common human problem is fabricating because we don't understand. But the, the, the we're not supposed to understand. Like we're not born understanding four noble truths. That the first noble truth, it, these are timeless truths. They they will be present throughout human history, as far as we know. And the Buddha said the the defining characteristic of human life is dukkha, is stress and, and suffering, because we're distracted by so many things. So even things that are pleasurable and joyful are also excitable and stressful especially when we're taking it personally. Yeah, it just resolves in being present for this moment in our life. Whatever's occurring is what's occurring. And again, it doesn't mean that we're completely passive about our life. We do what we do, and, uh, and but we don't take any of that person. It, it just changes, it changes everything. So, thank you, Paul. Julia. Julia. Hi, John. Hi everyone. Thank you for the teaching. Um, I want to thank Ryan for the feedback loop of mindfulness and concentration. That's a really helpful image for me. So thank you, Ryan. Um, besides that, 
I had things that I wanted to share, but I think that I'm just really grateful to be here for this teaching this week. It's a really good one for me right now. So I think I'll take a little silence from here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hi, Laura. Hi, John. Thank you so much for that uh, wonderful guided meditation and the teaching. And <clears throat> yeah, I, like Julie, I don't have much to add, but I was going to say same thing. Thank you again, Brian, um, for reiterating kind of what John was saying about, you know, the five clinging aggregates and hindrances and that this process of just by the nature of what we do in meditation is no judgment. You yeah. know? It's and that's what keeps me coming back to it too, because you know, there is no the framework of the Eightfold Path is one of just no judgment. It, it just is because it's so simple. I mean it's, it can be difficult only because of all the fabrications and outside distractions, but you know, as you said, in and of itself it's really simple and yeah, yeah effective. So. It's just this. Yeah, it's just this. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Lord. Now I'm a teacher Rom. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. Um yeah, I don't think I have much to add. Wow, left you speechless. Yeah. The first. I, I I do realize that. I knew it. Both the the hindrances and, and five clinging aggregates used to be kind of a little difficult and confusing to grasp, but now they're just so familiar. They really are a, a natural part of, of practice. It's it's uh, it, it's a it's an explanation more than that. now it's an explanation of what's going on. Yeah, it confuses me. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, and it's you know again it's all right here and it's all you know manageable. I mean, it's nothing. There's nothing scary or Difficult to overcome here. They're, they're just common human things. Yeah. I think that at first glance, and maybe at a hundredth glance, there, there's the hindrances and the, and the aggregates <clears throat> are are so close to us. It's us, mm -hmm. right? And that's why it's so hard to see and accept that. Yeah, I'm stuck in sensual desire. Well, isn't that a good thing? Well, mm -hmm. It's not. You know, I'm doubtful and skeptical. Isn't that good? Well, in some things it was, but not in this. Understand where that's coming from. And the hindrances, I mean, the, the aggregates, it, it probably took me, I don't know, maybe three or four years of practice to even really understood what it meant. But eventually it's just, yeah, it's a warm feeling, perceptions, fabrications, consciousness. That's me. I still remember the first time that somebody said, in, in in reference to some of these issues that they were having in this practice, I think it was Jeff who said, "It's just a hindrance." Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> just a hindrance. Yeah. yeah, it's not the end of your world. It's not the end of your practice. It's just just a hindrance. Yeah, it's like once you know the boogeyman, it's nothing scary anymore. So it's a cover. Thank you, Ron. 
Thomas Teacher Davis. Way over there. This practice provides you an opportunity to have clarity. You see these hindrances and these aggregates, these discrete things that are arising. Before the practice, you weren't there for these things arising and passing away. You were in life too close. Yep. And practice provides you that clarity to be fully engaged with your life. You know, you see these things arise. You accept that they're passing away. That it's impermanent. And it's not me. That doesn't mean I have to not be fully engaged with joy or tragedy or anything to do with your life. You're there. Yeah. You're, you're, you're better trained to be there. To be in a moment where in the past you were only thinking about, I always think of like double dutch. Like you're just waiting to jump in. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're just waiting for you to get back into pushing this thing that I've created. And you were saying it's the self that you created and why do we keep it up? Well, I've convinced everyone about it. So I'm doubling down all the time. <laughs> but now with this practice, I can be fully engaged in that clarity and that restraint that just comes naturally. So, you know, I haven't been doing it for that long, but that's why it works that way. Yeah, you develop an inner poise moment by moment. You know what to do, and you know that you know what to do. So, what's there to be afraid of or apprehensive? Whatever arises is what arises, and you deal with it, and you deal with it. You take another breath, and the next moment comes, and there you are, present again. And so each and every moment of our life becomes meaningful for the sole reason that we're here for. And we don't need anything else, do we? I want to live a human life. How do I do it? i got to be here now. Who was that? Was that Alan Watson who wrote that book? In the 60s? Mm, I don't think it was uh, Ronald's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and I'm, he didn't teach what we teach, but this is it. What, what more could I want out of life in this moment except to be here? And this brilliant man figured it out 2,600 years ago. He left his teaching, and we have this wonderful song that developed it. It's a pretty good deal, I think. Anybody have any other questions? Thank you, David. Any, any other questions? Yeah, please. Have you ever experienced or do you believe that some people are just by their very nature born with these qualities, the eight as and uh, you really don't need what, what we're doing here. They're, you know, they're, they're very kind Passionate, generous, uh, loving, fulfilled people. Yeah. Uh, they're rare. They're very rare. Yeah. But everybody wants to be around them. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it's, uh, you know, that could overwhelm them. Well, it, it's, a, it's a really great question. Um, so I, I kind of have a three-pronged answer. One is, that wasn't me. That wasn't you. 
Um, the second prong is my mother was that way. She was, she was just an unbelievably kind, compassionate, present person who loved what she did with her life. But yet at the end of her life, she was disappointed and I would say almost terrified of dying. And I always thought that was curious because she was, I don't want to get into the religious aspects of that. Um, I was, I was one of the, there were six kids. I was the only one that really stayed with her. She had a 10 year illness that was just got worse and worse and worse, pretty awful at the end. Um, but so I spent a lot of time with her. And it, it just always, I always thought, you know, this is, this woman lived this great life. And I don't want to get into the whole story of her. Like she didn't, you know, she wasn't world famous or anything, but, um, but at the end, it was like, she almost was doubting herself. And so anyway, that's, that's the second prong. So the outward appearance was really not completely reflective of what was going on inside her. The third is, uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard as you do, Krishnamurti. He was a man that, um, again, not to get into his whole story, but I, he was, um, I would say he was a fully mature human being, but yet he didn't know how to teach other people how to, how to do it. That was the real, to me, the defining difference between Krishnamurti, a contemporary of ours, and mm -hmm. the Buddha. He just, but it he, was always asked, too. People always came to him with questions. Oh yes, that's, yeah. that's the, the, the strange thing there. Well, I saw his qualities, but he he wasn't able to to really teach. I, yeah, I think it's because he didn't have to grapple with some of the things that Siddhartha had to, so he didn't realize that other human beings might have to do the same. Sure. So one of the things that he used to say in almost every talk was, "Look at the life you're living," which is very reflective about what. I'm teaching what we're teaching here. Be present for your life. But again, he, he didn't teach people and probably, I don't think he understood that there were, this really gets to the heart of what you were saying, Paul, too, that some people need an eightfold path. He didn't to get to that state of great compassion and kindness. And there's still um, schools that he started way back when in, uh, in England. Uh, so he's, he, had, he has had an everlasting effect on humanity. So, yeah, to answer your question, I think some people are um, naturally that very kind, compassionate way, but I don't know that that necessarily means that they've ended all fabrications about themselves. And it's those fabrications, those, those um, corrupted constructions that we make about ourselves that are really the difficulty. So, it's a, it's a really good so discussion. Be, have these rare people, your mother, dude, aren't they missing right view? Well, in mm -hmm. my mind, I... Isn't that the, the whole point of this, this dumb pointing you to the fully, full extent of right view? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. The, 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 the distinguishing factor would be right view, which is right view is, is the view that nothing is personal. Again, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. Um, 
you know, I, I couldn't say that about Krishnamurti. I think he might have been his interest. I think he, he he lived his life from what we would call right view, but again, he didn't he didn't understand how to teach you and me how to do it. He just he was more like an um, kind of like a saint, you know, a, a Christian saint. Their their life is is the inspiration for that aspiration, isn't it? But I mean, I know when I was a you know a, a Catholic kid that. I just, there was no way I was going to do that. And then I was told, well, if you don't do it, you're going to spend the rest of your life in hell. And that was, you know, it's a pretty dismal way to go out into your life. Um, it really, it's an interesting question, Paul. And I keep coming back to what the Buddha said upon his awakening, just before he went out and started teaching was, this is what I'm doing is just for those with a speck of dust in their eyes. So it's not exclusive, but the Buddha understood that, that this is, there's some people that will gain benefit from this and others won't. And because he never saw himself as a savior, that was okay. So, so you're saying some people won't gain benefit from this? I think anybody that took to it wholeheartedly and continued well, I, I, I mean, I've, you know, I've been teaching for 12 or 13 years now, and those that have stayed with the practice have gained great benefit. Um, but I've also, if, if everybody that came through this room and online and, and expressed an interest in this kept coming, I'd be holding these classes in Madison Square Garden. So, yeah. Um, so I think people get to the point where they, just to, just to get to the point and just get it done quickly because it's getting late. People, when they get to the point where they realize they've got to change their minds wholeheartedly, that's when they stop, that's when they bow out. And I, I can understand that. Um, and there's no disappointment from my end because, again, because I do understand. It. So, you know, there maybe, does need to be a very fundamental, forget what Brian called it, curiosity. Yeah. In, in this. And, and, a, and a pretty deep sense of honesty with yourself. Yeah, you're right. You know, the willingness to, to look at yourself in, in, a, in a pretty glaring light. Because the, the tendency to gloss over your your kind of funky things that you, you know, you just do that to stay alive, to be part of our society. Um, but Nobody comes here without, first of all, a, a curiosity. I'm, I'm looking for something. You know? Usually to fix a broken self in some way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But still, you know, uh, with luck, that, that can lead to an understanding that there's nothing broken, but yeah. there's a lot to be gained. Yeah. It was. It was a, a deep curiosity that got me to dive into the suttas and then start stripping away the stuff that I didn't feel the Buddha taught. Mm -hmm. I really just, after years and years of practice in most of the schools of modern Buddhism, I was more frustrated and confused than I ever was. And I figured, you know, I thought that there was a human being that actually became a Buddha, awake, Buddha means awakening. 
and I thought if I was going to find it, it was in the supers. And there it was. Been stripping away all the magic and, this, and the mystical teachings and speculation, and you're just left with this. And it was that really deep curiosity that got me to do that in the first place. As they say, the rest is history. Hey, David, you forgot to tell me to turn my camera. I got to say all that again. Any, any other questions? Comments before we close? Okay. We'll finish with Meta as we always do. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddhist words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta, describing the qualities of an awakened, fully mature human being. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, <clears throat> they maintain refined mind. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, they abandon ignorance of four noble truths. Having completed the path, they are not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class Thank you, John. Peace. Thank you, John. Bye. Bye. See you, John. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.